Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. I'm your host, Ajua Robinson, and I'd like to take a moment to tell you about a new feature of Living Proof. In addition to listening, subscribing to, and sharing podcasts, you can now rate and write a review of each episode of Living Proof. To rate or write a review of a podcast, just go to our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu forward slash podcast and click on the Create Your Own Review button. We look forward to hearing from you. Dr. Caitlin Ryan is a clinical social worker and director of the Marion Wright Edelman Institute at San Francisco State University. Dr. Ryan is a founder and past president of the National Lesbian and Gay Health Foundation and founder of the National Association of People with AIDS. She has developed community-based AIDS services and conducted groundbreaking research on lesbian health and mental health needs and concerns. As director of the Family Acceptance Project at the Marion Wright Edelman Institute, she has studied how family acceptance and rejection affect the health, mental health, and well-being of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender youth. Dr. Ryan has written numerous articles, monographs, and reports, including co-authoring the first book on AIDS policy, AIDS, a public health challenge, which served as the basis for many of the recommendations of the first presidential commission on AIDS. Her most recent co-authored book, Serving LGBT Youth in Out-of-Home Care, provides the first policy and practice guidelines to improve services for LGBT youth in child welfare, juvenile justice, and transitional living programs. Dr. Ryan's work has been acknowledged by many professional and community groups. Her contributions to lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender health has spanned 35 years through community development, advocacy, policy, and research. In this episode of Living Proof, Dr. Ryan discusses the challenges of breaking ground in new areas of research, especially work that may be considered controversial, and what it takes to do work that is culturally and linguistically appropriate. The conversation ends with advice for those who would like to follow similar lines of research. Dr. Diane Elsey, Associate Professor and Director of the MSW Program at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work, spoke with Dr. Ryan by telephone. I'm Diane Elsey from the University at Buffalo School of Social Work, and I will be talking today with Dr. Caitlin Ryan. Dr. Ryan, thank you so much for your willingness to be interviewed. Well, Diane, I'm thrilled to be asked, actually, and indeed, it's an honor to be interviewed by you. I so appreciate the leadership that you provided especially in social work education, which is one area where we really need to get this information out. Yes. Yeah, so, well, thank you. I am impressed by the cultural diversity of the participants in your study, in both phases of your study, in the interviews that you've done and in the surveys that you've done, and then also in the intervention research that you are embarking upon. It sounds like you are your study is really reaching out to Latino families, to Chinese families. Could you talk about what it's been like for you and your team to really be committed to recruiting culturally diverse participants? 
I think that's something that has to be a priority from the very beginning. I think that a lot of times people start a research project or a program and they know that they want to provide a service, but they haven't really thought through who do they want to serve and who do they want to reach and how to include them. And I, I think that's part of the reason why so many of the studies that have been done um, end up with a very small proportion of people who are not white, people of color, uh, multi-ethnic folks. And our work has always been characterized by looking at culture, ethnicity, experiences, diversity in every aspect of the work. And not only did we do the qualitative and then the quantitative, you know, the young adult survey, but we also did after that, very exciting briefing sessions where we took the research back to many of the families in the original qualitative study, and then we expanded it to include very diverse families with young people, you know, children, adolescents, young adults from different age groups. So those included African American, white, Latino, API, Chinese, some Native American, and we did that work in three languages to share the findings with families. We documented their reactions both pre and post and with a three-month interview, you know, out after that initial briefing session. But we heard how they responded to the findings. And so what in essence happened was the families helped us message the research findings. The families helped us interpret them. They helped us understand what would be helpful for them and other families like them from their backgrounds in terms of motivating behavioral change and supporting, um, treating their children in a different sort of way than they'd already been interacting with them, what kinds of materials were needed, how best to present that information. So in developing our materials, those briefing sessions were extraordinarily useful, but they also really helped us in figuring out how to do the interventions, how to think about providing outreach materials. We also did similar briefing sessions with providers, ethnically diverse, and then we started doing them earlier this year with youth. These are all resource issues. And if I were going to underscore one big word for what does it really take, it's a real resource issue. So from the very beginning, if you want to include ethnically diverse groups in your work, it's a matter of committing resources and committing them from the very beginning. You have to plan this in your budget. I planned this with great intentionality because um, I wanted to be sure that not only could we help families in the U.S., but really help them around the world because part of what I want to do is to help. And I've been doing this with groups in some other countries in disseminating our work to create a, an international movement of family support and promoting wellness and well-being for LGBT young people. One aspect of globalization, of course, is that we can communicate about these issues through the Internet across the world. And this is actually having an impact on sexual behavior, on attitudes, on identities uh, across nationally, internationally. And so I, I decided earlier when I was getting ready to plan the interventions, which I've actually been planning for a long time, but I wanted to pick the three largest languages in the world. And for, from my perspective, those were English, Spanish, and Chinese. So when we decided to do the interventions, I knew that I needed those language experiences. I needed the, um, the lived experience in native level fluency and understanding and, and all of that. And I made a resource commitment. But when I say a resource commitment, I'm not just talking about adding that to the budget. You have to move the money around in your budget to figure out, you know, if you're going to add skilled 
master's level practitioners who really could have the ability to work with families, that means that other parts of the budget, you know, have to be lowered as well. And it, it takes a lot to do this work. And the reason I've done it, I think, over all of these years is that I've been willing to make a commitment myself. So I've never really made an adult salary. And I laugh when I talk about that, but my commitment is to the work. And so I think so many times people are more concerned about, is this something that's going to fit into what I'm already doing rather than the resources have to be allocated and prioritized from day one. And and having worked with so many diverse families, I knew that we could have an impact on them. In fact, many Chinese people had said to us, oh, Chinese families will never come forward. And I've been a community organizer since the 1960s, so I know that if you provide services in a way that's respectful, linguistically and culturally appropriate and available, people will use them if they need them. And we knew that in a, you know, in our community in the Bay Area, there are many Chinese-speaking young people. In fact, that's the third, you know, about a third of the kids in school speak Cantonese. So in thinking about this, um, we created a, a collaboration with one of the big Chinese settlement house agencies and the community did a lot of outreach, announced our uh, collaboration in all of the Chinese newspapers and Chinese media. And lots of people were saying, oh, you know, families will never come. And what we found was that after we did this level of outreach, we immediately had seven families that called, Chinese speaking, with lesbian or gay children. And the last was a family with a seven-year-old transgender child that was very in great distress and didn't know where to turn. So it's a question of resources. It's a question of intentionality. And it's also a question of not just paying lip service, but getting the highest quality that you can get. You really need native level language and cultural experience in order to present in the most effective ways. And throughout the course of my life, I've lived outside the U.S. periodically. I've spent quite a lot of time in Asia, for example, and part of that included um, doing research as a Fulbright scholar on AIDS in South Korea. And I learned a great deal about how to do this appropriately, but also to do it in a way that people can hear it. And uh, I guess that's probably the best way to answer your question. I want to come back to the recruitment of transgender youth. But before we leave that area of financial resources, I do want to ask you, Dr. Ryan, what is it like for you to secure funding for your project? This is a huge project. It's been going on now for seven years, I believe. And we know that conducting intervention research the way that you're conducting it is also very costly. It's so important, but it's also very costly. So what is the funding like? for you? <laughs> well, I, I have to laugh because, you know, I, I'd have to say that I never have enough funding. And in fact, the entire project is supported by foundations and a small number of donors. Uh, we've been fortunate to have had mainstream funders like the California Endowment that made a major commitment at the beginning to support the research. And had they not done that, we would never have had this amazing research to use for all different kinds of things. We've had other funders since then, particularly because our work has a lot of salience for out-of-home youth. So NEKC, KC Family Programs, 
and most recently uh, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation that gave us a matching grant to develop these interventions. But even so, it, it really isn't enough, and these are tough times, you know, to be raising funds. So I don't really have a job. I am a, I live completely on soft money, so my team is small. It's very intentional. I'm very frugal. <laughs> we actually shop at the dollar store for, you know, our advisory committee meetings, you know, and we've learned how to do this over the years in a very, very frugal way. But we are tax deductible through San Francisco State, and I'm hoping over time to increase our donor base, particularly in these very, very challenging times when some of our foundations have actually had to cut back in the level of funding that has, you know, they've been able to make available. I think you always have to be creative, Diane. You can't ever take anything for granted. And I spend about four hours out of every day, even the weekends, working on fundraising, be it writing thank you letters to donors or trying to find new sources of funding. I think one of the biggest problems, because I've always worked in areas that have never been done before, you know, did the first work in defining lesbian health and planning that in 1979 or early work in the AIDS epidemic or early work in lesbian and gay health in the 1970s. It was always so hard to talk people into funding something that they couldn't envision. And it still is very, very challenging, even though I think this work has extraordinary promise, particularly for jurisdictions. Our research has shown dramatic impacts that families, rejecting families, have on increasing risk for suicide, substance abuse, HIV, depression. So if you think about the cost of homelessness or career mental health or HIV infection or the lost tax base from um, people who die at a very early age of suicide. It really costs our communities. And one of the things I want to do, although I haven't had time, is to do a cost-benefit analysis to show jurisdictions that by doing early intervention and doing family work at an early stage, we can save you know, so many millions of dollars that could be otherwise applied. That's a little bit of a tangent, but Uh, I think what I'm talking about is the cost-effectiveness of helping families do something that they do by instinct, which is to love their children. So in essence, one day I was talking with a parent, and it just sort of came out, but in these days of H1N1, I just said to her, you know, think about these supportive behaviors as inoculating your child with love, because that's really, in essence, what you're doing. So... Our interventions are very cost-effective. They're very close to the ground. They're about as close to the ground as you can get because we're working with family units. And the other really exciting thing about them, and we found this when we did a special session at the International AIDS Conference in Mexico City, is that they can really be done all over the world. And so there are a lot of countries that are following us and are very excited about using whatever it is that we're developing in their own communities. Mm, That's very powerful. And I think your research also, of course, um, is gives hope to people. I mean, families change around all kinds of issues. And so why wouldn't, couldn't they change around this issue as well? Well, you put your finger, I think, on one of the most important aspects of what we're doing, which is hope. And uh, in fact, You know, in all the work I've ever done, this is the most hopeful and inspiring. And, you know, if we had three weeks of 
of taping this interview, I could tell you the most moving stories of families in, you know, really meager and all different kinds of circumstances figuring out how to help that LGBT child and families that people would never expect. In fact, one of the things that I've been doing, and this is another place where I actually really need the fundraising, people probably don't know that I have a background in art and music, and that's how I survived adolescence, but before I uh, started doing this kind of work, I actually was an artist and a musician and went, was a professional photographer and, you know, did a lot of other things in my young years, um, you know, in my teens and early 20s. And so one of the things that I've seen is the profound need, because there really aren't services for families of color to find one another, the profound need to give them hope and, so, and to give youth hope. So with a friend of mine, um, who's a Peabody Award-winning documentary filmmaker, we've been making these beautiful video stories that actually reflect the rejecting and accepting behaviors in our research and are um, the stories of ethnically, socially, and religiously diverse families that are, we're actually using them in the interventions and we're using them for training. And eventually when I do an online uh, CEU, CME course, I'll use these videos as part of the training that we include to help providers identify opportunities for intervention as well as the outcomes of really helping families support their children. But there are so many ways I think that because we have, first of all, such amazing data and these are the stories of families, they're their own words, many, many ways that we can use the arts if we had the funding uh, to, uh, to do that. Mm. Can we return for a moment to the issue of transgender youth? And were there any unique challenges you faced in recruiting transgender young people for your study, transgender young people and their families for your interventions? Uh, yes, there, there are, and there were and there are. Um, we were we did the qualitative the first qualitative part of our study some time ago and there were fewer transgender young people who were out and fewer families that were willing to be interviewed. We found that many um, families with transgender youth who transition um, want they want to leave the past behind so they don't want the story of that to be available. They really want to move with their child as their child transitions and live with that young person in that current identity. So those, I think, were some recruitment challenges. But I think in terms of the whole concept of the word transgender, um, it's a very broad term. Uh, transgender identities have really expanded over the last decade. Um, it's so broad that I'm not really sure how useful it is, except if people self-identify, of course, that's how they identify and we need to respect that. But I think the other aspect that I really have seen that's very important is that how a person's gender expression is perceived by others and how they react to that gender expression is a huge issue in terms of being in the world. And many people are gender variant, which means they don't match cultural or personal definitions of how men or women are expected to look, act, or behave, but not all of them identify as transgender. In fact, I'm, I have to go back and check it, but a very high proportion of LGBT young adults in our study 
um, their parents and family members had tried to change their gender expression. So in other words, they tried to pressure them to conform with cultural and societal expectations of gender. And we know that some cultures have more latitude or room for less traditionally masculine males or more masculine females. There's more latitude in mainstream culture for girls to be androgynous, but we know when they get to high school, girls are expected to be more feminine, so there's more pressure to conform. Um, Many people who were gender variant and who were pressured by their parents to conform to their expectations didn't identify as transgender, yet they still had higher levels of negative outcomes than young people who were not pressured by their parents to conform to gender expression. So I think that perception and reaction related to gender expression are keys of well-being for young people more than any self-label. And I think that's a really important issue to think about in all of this. So perhaps last but not least, you've been a national leader in LGBT research for many years. And so what advice would you give to new researchers who are interested in pursuing LGBT research as the focus for their career? Well, you know, I I can definitely give advice on this, although, you know, I'm I'm not sure to what extent people want to hear it because I, I think that, first of all, you have to get the very best training you can get. And that may involve sacrifice in terms of the amount of work that's done or the resources that have to be applied. I've heard from many students, both master's level and doctoral level, who want to develop their own curricula. They want to go to schools that will let them design their curricula. They're very clear. They just want to work with LGBT populations, and these are the courses that they want to take in class. And... I think these self-designed courses are typically not well-designed and students don't get the rigorous training they get from studying in more traditional academic programs that teach them the nuts and bolts of research, theory, and critical thinking. There really aren't any shortcuts to learning how to do this work. My advice is find the most rigorous program you can get in and learn the basics. You can also study sexuality and LGBT issues and you can learn more of that later. Once you get out of a program, you can study whatever you want. But but getting those basic skills of critical thinking and research methods and really thinking about these issues, even basic developmental, you know, high-quality high developmental courses, very important. Another important thing is to find a mentor who will help you learn, and, and you have to really be willing to work hard. So that may involve volunteering to work on a team, doing things that you may think are not important, like Xeroxing or, you know, helping set up meetings. Uh, I'm from an immigrant family, and many of our team, actually, if I come to think about it, I think our original team were all immigrants. And I find that, I don't think they want to hear this, but many students and young practitioners, uh, you know, are reluctant to work hard. And many of them are... um, you know, they're looking, thinking, being concerned about, you know, when, well, when is this, when can I leave or when is it over? And doing work that's never been done before, which is incredibly rewarding on many levels, takes an enormous amount of hard work. Woody Allen says that much of life is showing up, just being there. Mm-hmm. But I would argue that the rest of it is hard work. And I think if you want to chart these incredibly rich, um, 
unexplored, very important avenues, it really requires working very, very hard to do that, not only just to get the education, but also to think through, develop the networks, the relationships, the venues that will enable you to do something that will really make a difference. Great. Okay. Well, I want to thank you so much for all the time you gave to this interview and the energy that you expended. And I want to thank you so very much for your research and your advocacy over the years on behalf of LGBT people. It's been a pleasure to be on this call, Diane, and to get to have, we've actually never had a conversation like this. So it's very exciting, and I hope before too long to really show you what we're actually doing. You've been listening to Dr. Caitlin Ryan discuss the challenges of conducting culturally competent and pioneering research. Look for episode 33, in which Dr. Ryan discusses her work on the Family Acceptance Project. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time for more lectures and conversations on social work practice and research. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.